Good morning, everyone. The topic of my talk this morning is learning to listen to our body. A couple of years ago, I gave a Dharma talk entitled Treating Mind and Spirit as One. The organization I work for, Psychotherapy and Spirituality Institute, has as its motto, Treating Mind and Spirit as One. And in that talk, I tried to describe why I felt that mind and spirit can't be separated but are inextricably bound together. And as I've thought about that subsequently, I realized there's another dualistic fallacy that we understandably fall prey to, and that is seeing the mind and body as separate entities. We tend to live in our heads and see our body somehow as a separate appendage. Even when I say our bodies are my body, I'm, my words reflect that fallacy, but I don't know how to avoid that, so in sharing these thoughts with you, I will have to engage in some unavoidable dualistic language talking about the body, or my body, or our body. We tend to think, I have a body, but, we object to, but when we object to body, we lose sight of the truth, I am a body, my body is me. Without the body, there would be no mind or spirit. They're all part of one integrated whole. So today I want to expand on what I said previously over a year ago and talk about treating body, mind, and spirit as one. Specifically, I want to focus on what we can learn by listening to our body because it can tell us a lot. Because our thoughts and emotions are processed through the brain, it's natural to assume that the brain is the source and container of our thoughts and feelings. But that's not the case. It couldn't be further from the truth. Our brain is simply a receptor and transmitter of thoughts, feelings, and judgments. But these things reside in our bodies, which include the brain, but so much more. And that's where we tend to experience and store them. The ancient Hebrews understood this very well. In the Old Testament, the heart is seen as the place where intellect and wisdom reside. The blood is seen as a symbol of the life principle, and the kidneys receive, interestingly, uh, attention in 30 places in the Old Testament. And in each instance, the emphasis is not on their anatomical aspect, but rather on the idea that they are the seat of conscience, emotions, desire, and wisdom. And in the Book of Lamentations, the liver is referred to as a place where intense grief resides. Interesting, isn't it? We don't tend to think in those terms. My kidneys are feeling joy. My liver is heavy with sorrow and loss. It seems like an alien concept, yet I think it's probably closer to the truth than we realize. Now, we do equate the heart with certain emotions, certainly love and loss, and that is the exception. But generally, we don't tend to think of our emotions as residing in our bodies. One of the growing frontiers in psychology today is the emergence of somatic therapies that seek to heal trauma and stress by increasing awareness of the body and its role in both storing and blocking unwanted or painful feelings. This began in the 1940s and 50s with the pioneering work of the psychologist Wilhelm Reich, who developed the concept of body armor. Reich suggested that we develop physical barriers to protect us from allowing unwelcome feelings either to come in or to go out. This idea inspired Fritz Perls in developing Gestalt therapy and Alexander Lowen, who developed bioenergetic therapy. 
Both Pearls and Lowen suggested that painful feelings which we don't want to feel or acknowledge become stored in our bodies. For example, the anger in a clenched jaw or fist, the tension in a growling stomach, or the stress in a stiff back. Now, some of you may be old enough to remember in the 1970s when a form of massage called rolfing was popular. It's still around, but not very much today. Those who practiced rolfing felt that doing very deep tissue massage, actually separating the fascial tissue from the bone, had the effect of releasing feelings that were trapped in various parts of the body. And while rolfing could be a physically painful experience, many who underwent it found that in the process of receiving this kind of deep massage, very strong feelings or memories associated with those feelings would emerge, often bringing a sense of relief. They would find that a certain feeling had been trapped in their shoulder or back or elsewhere in the body. And when pushed and pressed, it would emerge. Now, this emphasis on the inescapable connection between psyche and soma or body has gained momentum in the last 20 years or so with the arising of a number of somatic therapies, especially in recent years. But, uh, the, and these therapies have gained an increasing respect in the psychotherapeutic community. For example, practitioners of EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, have found that having a person do repeated motions with one hand and then the other, activating both sides of the brain, is an effective tool for helping people both to access and release past trauma that they have experienced and not been able to work through. Or, another example, those who practice EFT, emotionally focused therapy, have found that by having their clients tap various parts of their hand and face, which corresponds to the meridians that connect the internal organs, while reciting intentions of releasing unpleasant feelings or changing behavior, has often succeeded. In spite of having been upset this morning, I will be calm the rest of the day. In spite of you tap here as you say it, you tap here, then here, then here, then here, then here, and then here. Now, no one really understands why these things work. What we do understand is that in these rituals, and that's essentially what they are, psyche and body are working together to create positive change. Now, acupuncturists probably would not find that so strange, because that art, which we know has been practiced in Asia for thousands of years, has successfully demonstrated the existence of neurological meridians that connect all vital organs and all parts of the body. It's only in the last 20 or 30 years that Western medicine has begun to really acknowledge the validity of this concept, though today most medical insurance will not cover it, and there are still many, too many physicians that do not acknowledge it. But all of this suggests that our bodies and minds are closely interconnected and that in our bodies lies the wisdom to heal us and make us whole if we can learn how to access that wisdom, how to really listen to what our bodies are telling us. When it comes to prioritizing our time and energy, for some reason, taking care of the body often gets short shrift. How many times we find ourselves saying, I'm going to start dieting tomorrow, or I'm going to get that gym membership and start exercising more, or more often, I'm going to start using that gym membership, which I've had for a year and maybe gone three times, or I'm really going to cut back on carbohydrates, or I'm going to start going to bed earlier, etc. How often do we say these kind of things without really following up on them and not really doing it? 
Why is it that these kinds of resolutions to improve our health so often fail to materialize and we tend to give them low priority? I think in part this is due to the fact that the body is such an efficient machine that perhaps in some ways it's too efficient for our own good. We can often neglect it for fairly long periods of time without paying an immediate price. It takes a long while, for example, sometimes years, for excessive drinking or drug abuse to wear down our internal organs. We may be able to go long periods without exercise or adequate sleep before it affects our health. But in the long run, if we abuse our bodies, we suffer consequences, I think both physical and mental consequences. For example, a recent study in Japan showed that in many instances, there's a direct correlation between inflammation of the intestines and mental illness. The study suggests that when poor diet leads to intestinal inflammation, this weakens the immune system, which can exacerbate neurological disorders, including mental illness. So a number of patients in a Tokyo hospital who were suffering from bipolar manic episodes and who had not responded to mood-stabilizing drugs showed remarkable improvement when they were given strong probiotics for several weeks, improving the balance of flora in their intestines. Remember the old saying, you are what you eat. I think there's some real truth to that. Inflammation has become a big word in medical circles these days. And there are an increasing number of studies that suggest that intestinal inflammation is an important factor in most immune system disorders and possibly even in the growth of cancer cells. Now, I think we all know that eating healthy is good for us. But these studies suggest that it may be more important than we ever realized. Of course, then the question is, what does it mean to eat healthy? Does that necessarily mean being vegetarian or vegan? Should we avoid gluten if, even if we don't suffer from celiac disease? Now, most of us would probably benefit from doing so. But I think we need to be careful in how we approach this. There's a tendency for us to think in all or nothing terms. There's no question that most people would probably benefit from a vegetarian diet. Certainly Buddhism teaches this and a high percentage of Buddhists are vegetarians. But there are many factors that come into play here. Some people need more protein than others. And some even seem to need animal protein. I include myself in that group, by the way. When I sought help from a nutritionist several years ago who was also a kinesiologist, she performed many tests on me and tried several different diets and supplements. And then she finally concluded that while for most people she would recommend a vegetarian diet, she felt that I needed a modest amount of meat and maybe even red meat in my diet to function optimally. We're not all the same. And it's important for each of us to understand the idiosyncrasies of our own body, which doesn't always conform to normal medical standards. Almost all of us clearly would benefit from not consuming too many carbohydrates, especially sugar, which we all know is probably the single most unhealthy thing that we consume, but also one of the most pleasurable. But does that mean then cutting out all sugar, never having a scoop of ice cream or a piece of good chocolate fudge cake? I don't think so. Again, it's not an all or nothing thing. There's such a thing as being reasonable rather than extreme. An occasional dessert is a pleasure for most people and their health will not suffer if it's an occasional treat and not a daily indulgence. And let me just add that for me, this is a constant challenge because I love sweets. <laughs> 
Like in so many other areas of our lives, I think finding a reasonable middle ground, what Buddha called the middle way, is our, in our dietary choices, makes a lot of sense and is much easier to achieve than trying for absolute perfection, which is much more likely to fail. Now, this is true as, as true of exercise as it is of diet. It's easy to get caught up in the idea that you have to run several miles every other day or do lengthy, exhausting workouts in a gym to stay in shape, which in part, I think, explains why we tend to avoid exercise. It feels too much like work. But the fact is that it doesn't take all that much exercise to keep your heart and body healthy. A study was done in Britain over a, couple, uh, over a number of years with three groups of people. One was a group of people who ran marathons. Second group were people who walked two miles or more at a normal pace for about three times or more a week. The third was a group that did not exercise at all. And this study showed that in terms of cardiovascular health, those who walked and exercised moderately were essentially as healthy as those who ran marathons, while those who did no exercise had a much higher incidence of heart disease. Again, it's really a question of finding a happy middle road. And it's never too late to begin a moderate exercise regime. A few years ago, having a job where I sit most of the day, I was far too sedentary, and so I bought a Fitbit, which I have right here on my wrist, and that measures uh, uh, how many steps I walk. And I set for myself a goal of walking at least 8,000 steps a day, which is about four miles. And being a bit obsessive-compulsive about such things, I've done a pretty good job of keeping that up. And interestingly, I've had a lot more energy and less illness since I started doing that. But it's a modest amount of exercise. A third area that greatly affects our health is the amount of sleep we get. Studies have shown that sleep deprivation is a major factor both in contributing to a, comprised, a compromised immune system and increased emotional stress. An article in the latest issue of Psychology Today suggests that people who are sleep-deprived tend not only to be less happy but less well-liked because they are much more prone to negative feelings and angry outbursts. Interesting idea. This past year, the United States passed Japan as the industrialized country with the fewest hours of sleep per capita. It's understandable that when you work a long day and get home in the evening, you want to have a good block of time to yourself, to chill, to watch TV, read, or whatever. And we all deserve that. But it gets very tempting to let that stretch into the wee hours, especially when we have so much digital information and entertainment at our fingertips, and the result often being that we get too little sleep. As with diet and exercise, not everyone is the same in terms of the amount of sleep they need to stay healthy. Some people need a lot more or less than others. But it's a rare person who can function optimally on less than seven hours of sleep a night. In fact, the article in Psychology Today suggests that they have found that no one can function optimally over a period of time on less than seven hours of sleep per night. There's a common myth that older people need less sleep. It's true that older people often get less sleep because chronic physical problems, lack of exercise, and the stress of social isolation can make it difficult for them to get a good night's rest. But recent studies suggest that while seven to eight hours of sleep is optimal for most young and middle-aged adults, those over 70 ideally should get at least nine hours of sleep a night. 
Getting adequate rest is so important, yet we so often fail to achieve it. A poll taken last year showed that more than 70% of American adults felt they had experienced insomnia within the previous year, and close to half said they were sleep deprived. I think this is a serious problem. And we've learned a lot about sleep in the last few years that can help us with this problem. For example, there's good evidence that exposure to any digital screen during the last hour before you go to bed affects the melatonin level in your brain in such a way as to add another 15 or 20 minutes to the amount of time it will take you to fall asleep. Americans often depend on medication to help them sleep. This can help in the short term, but usually not in the long term. We develop a tolerance to sleep medications so that over a period of time it takes more and more of them to put us to sleep. And studies have shown that medications like Ambien, Lunesta, and Sonata decrease the amount of REM sleep and don't really give us a restful night's sleep. Now, generally, insomnia will take care of itself over a period of time. Of course, there are exceptions. Sometimes insomnia from excessive stress requires intervention. But generally, the body will eventually do what it has to to give us the rest we need if we allow it. If we listen to our body, it will generally, for example, tell us not to consume caffeine or alcohol within a few hours of going to bed, not to watch programs or TV on TV that will cause our adrenaline to increase, and rather to do restful and relaxing things before retiring at night. Now, this is one that I have to watch because I'm a baseball nut, and if I watch a Dodger game before going to bed, it invariably takes me a couple of hours to fall asleep from the excitement of the game because that raises my adrenaline, and I've discovered that because I have mitral valve prolapse, which is not a serious situation, but it affects the, the nervous system, and that most people with NVP, it takes longer than most people for them for heightened adrenaline to come back down. Now, that's an important thing for me to learn about myself. I only learned this 20 years ago, but it's been helpful to know that. Again, it's a question of knowing your own body well enough to realize what kinds of food, drink, and behavior is most likely to impede or help you with getting adequate rest. And of course, most important probably is going to bed early enough to get the rest that your body requires. So what I'm saying is that when dealing with these kinds of health issues, diet, exercise, sleep, it's important for each of us to be in touch with our own body, which is unique and not necessarily like anyone else's, and to understand what my body or your body needs to function in a healthy and productive way. Now, learning how to pay attention to our body by listening to what it has to say is critical to our health and well-being, but how do we do that? And what does Buddhism, Buddhism have to say about that? First of all, one of the pitfalls of Christianity, not in its original message, but as it has been practiced through the ages, has been a tendency to see the body as a source of sinful longing and desire, something to be tamed and at best tolerated, but not celebrated. And this has also been true in some forms of Islam, Judaism, and even some ideations of Buddhism. The Uruguayan writer Eduardo Galeano summarized this in a poem that he wrote that goes, the church says the body is sin, science says the body is machine, advertising says the body is business, the body says, I am a fiesta. <laughs> I like that. <coughs> Initially, the Buddha practiced extreme asceticism in an attempt to tame his body. But later, he concluded that such efforts were futile, and he taught the middle way, 
free from excesses of either physical indulgence or asceticism. Tantric Buddhists observe what they call samaya, which includes not abusing one's body. Adam Rinpoche reports that tantric Buddhists, quote, hold the attitude of understanding that the body is a mandala, a holy temple, and naturally sacred. When they eat, they often consecrate the food as a ganachakra, or sacred feast. Eating itself becomes a ceremony of offering the feet to one's body as a divine abode. Now, one Buddhism, as I understand, teaches that body and mind are one and should not be treated as separate realities, but should always be respected. When Sote San speaks of the fruits of living the truth of Irwan's song, he says, quote, by integrating the spirit and body, we will have a positive influence on individuals, families, societies, and nations. When he discusses the path of humanity, he suggests that both mind and body should be approached with a combination of fear and respect in order to, quote, keep your mind and protect your body from harm. Now, while most of his teaching emphasized the importance of an enlightened mind that does not succumb to excessive bodily pleasure, and this is true in the teachings of most schools of Buddhism, he did not see such pleasure as evil or unpleasant. When he writes about achieving Buddhahood, he states, ordinary people only adhere to worldly pleasures which do not last long. However, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who enjoy heavenly pleasure can also enjoy worldly pleasures. Buddhas and bodhisattvas who enjoy heavenly pleasure can also enjoy worldly pleasures. The goal is not to denounce bodily pleasure, but to find the middle way in which these pleasures don't consume us or cause us harm. And I want to point this out because I think there's a tendency in the West, not among us here probably, but in the West, to characterize Buddhism as a religion that promotes a path that exalts the mind and spirit while denigrating the body, and I think this is simply not true. It's not true of what the Buddha experienced and taught, certainly not true of the teachings of Wan Buddhism. Of course, we must not lose sight of the fact that essential Buddhist thought does not see mind and body as separate entities, but rather as one unified reality. Nonetheless, I think in our inescapably dualistic thinking, it's important to understand what this physical part of our being can teach us about ourselves and the path toward wellness and wholeness. And that's where I think our spiritual practice can be a great help. Meditation helps us to escape from being stuck in our heads and puts us more in touch with our total being. It not only calms the brain, but also the entire body. Medical tests have shown that meditation lowers blood pressure, slows the pulse while slowing down the activity within the brain, lessening stress, and increasing a feeling of calmness throughout. I'm sure that from your practice, most of you here would say that's exactly what your experience has been. What's wonderful about this is that these benefits are not limited to the times that we're sitting and meditating. The body remembers. This is something that all somatic therapies tell us. When I was a student studying psychotherapy at the Blanton Peel Graduate Institute many years ago, I remember a presentation by someone who practiced neuro-linguistic processing. She pointed out that NLP teaches us that we can use bodily cues to induce physical states that we've experienced in the past. For example, when I meditate, I place the thumb and middle finger of each hand together on my lap. So when I experience a stressful situation, whether it be in a therapy session with a particularly anxious client, 
or sitting in a crowded, stalled subway train, if I begin to breathe the way I've learned to breathe here when meditating and place my fingers together in this way, my body, having been cued by the breathing and the position of the fingers, will tend to calm me and put me into a more meditative state because the body remembers. This is something that many professional athletes learn. If you try to think too much about that, what stroke to use on the tennis court, how to make that basketball shot, or how to swing at that curveball, you're likely to mess up. But if you've been successful in the past, your body will know what to do. It remembers, and you need to trust it. I was recently watching an episode of Call the Midwife, a great show on PBS. And in it, uh, one woman who had had children before was having a very difficult time with the delivery of her baby. And the midwife said, trust your body. It knows what to do. Our bodies are so wise. On a cellular level, they remember everything we have subjected them to, both positive and negative. So we can usually, I think, benefit greatly by not thinking things too much and being more attentive to listen to what the body needs and wants and knows how to do. And our spiritual practice of meditation plays a huge role in helping us to achieve this. Breathing in, body, mind, and spirit, I am one. Breathing out, body, mind, and spirit, I am one. One body, one mind, one spirit, one unified self. Thank you.